This is African News Tonight on The Voice of America. Hello and welcome. Welcome to African News Tonight from the English to Africa service of The Voice of America, your source for Pan-African news and world developments. I'm Yehiyas Wuhib in Washington. Coming up on African News Tonight... When they give assurances, I think that's the right thing to do because you don't need to create more panic or to show the public, okay, you're not in charge of the situation. That's, uh, that's Nigeria's security expert, Senator Irugabu, on officials trying to ease concerns after several foreign embassies warned of a terror attack in the capital. Details coming up. Also, talks to end the war between Ethiopia and its Tigray region continue. Nigeria's president is holding emergency meetings after several foreign missions issued terror warnings. And 11 people died in a stampede at a concert in the DRC. These stories and more on African News Tonight. We start with our top story. Talks to end the two-year-old war in Ethiopia's northern Tigray region continued today in South Africa's capital, Pretoria. But participants are keeping silent, making it difficult to assess progress, if any. Conflict between the Tigray People's Liberation Front, the TPLF, and Ethiopian and Eritrean government troops on the other side has killed thousands of people and displaced millions over the past two years. Darren Taylor reports. The African Union mediation team is led by former Nigerian President Olusegun Obasanjo, who's backed by Kenya's former leader Uhuru Kenyatta and former South African Deputy President Pumzile Mlambo Nuka. Sources on the fringes of the talks say the team has struggled to make headway, with the best that can be hoped for in days to come, a slight cessation of hostilities. Research professor at the Chwane University of Technology in Pretoria, Mamo Mushi, has monitored the talks since they began last Wednesday. What I heard is that the expectation is not a final outcome, but at least some framework where the negotiation can continue to end the war. Mushi is also the founding chairman of the International Network of Ethiopian Scholars and an expert in science, technology and African development. If they agree as a precondition that from now on the best way to resolve the difficulties is to make sure some trust in the negotiation is implanted. If they have achieved something like this in this one week, it would be very good. But the problem is to create trust between them, what must be done. At this stage, says Mushi, the warring parties remain fundamentally distrustful of one another. This, he says, seems to have made it impossible for the TPLF and Ethiopian government delegations to agree to an immediate ceasefire, so the killing and destruction in Tigray continued while the talks unfolded. Mushi's convinced the ultimate path to peace lies in constitutional reform in Ethiopia. The ethnic constitution, the apartheid constitution, should be abolished. South Africa has an excellent constitution. I hope South Africa can, can also really, really motivate them to see if they could learn from the variety of ethnic groups you have here, tribal groups you have here. You do not use tribe, language, religion, everything. That division, that difference is not used to divide. I think that is the main achievement we should get is to remove completely nearly 30 years 
of this apartheid ethnic division. The Ethiopian People's Revolutionary Democratic Front, of which the TPLF was the major part, governed the country for almost 30 years, until it lost elections in 2018. That's when Abiy Ahmed became Prime Minister, promising to centralize government and transform Ethiopia, doing away with ethnic regions and unifying the nation. The TPLF felt threatened by this and launched an insurgency in 2020. It's Mushi's hope that future talks spark an overarching unification process. If someone is from Oromo and they go to Tigray area, they are seen as foreigners. This is completely wrong. A complete change has to be made. That constitution is not changed. The negotiation doesn't make sense. You know why it doesn't make sense? Even if the TPLF agrees with the current government, there will still be conflicts. The conflict will not end. The main thing now is to end conflict forever. Mushi acknowledges this is a dream, but he reminds those at war that Nelson Mandela, for example, also achieved an impossible dream. South Africa has many problems, says Mushi, but they're the problems of one nation, not a country split into what he calls a puzzle of ethnic tensions and disagreements. For VOA News, I'm Darren Taylor in Johannesburg. In South Africa, the first peace talks between the government of Ethiopia and the leadership of the Tigray region have raised hopes for an end to the nearly two-year-old war. Despite no media access to the talks or to the Tigray region, South Africa's Ethiopian community remains hopeful of a deal to end the deadly conflict. Linda Giftash reports from Johannesburg. At the Queen Sheba Ethiopian restaurant in Johannesburg, food and culture is celebrated regardless of political divisions. So when the civil war broke out between the national government and Tigray People's Liberation Front in northern Ethiopia two years ago, owner Wandu Tasfaya said he was shocked. It was very surprised for me, but what happened was I hope, I hope this war has to be over and peace has to be integrated in the country. The United Nations says more than 5.2 million people are facing hunger as a result of the war, and international pressure to find an end to the fighting is mounting. Peace talks led by the African Union began last week in South Africa between the warring parties. The prospect of silencing the guns has given hope to many in the Ethiopian diaspora, including Tasfaya. I'm expecting right now what's going on in Ethiopia to have some kind of peace agreement in the country. Of course, South Africa, they chose it because of we do have a large Ethiopian community also in South Africa, but also the African Union involved a lot about it. Political analysts like the University of the Western Capes, Namla Machanda, agree an African-led solution is needed as the conflict affects the continent. I think it stopped being a, a, an internal um, conflict uh, with the introduction of Eritrean forces in, during the first wave of fighting where we saw um, thousands of Tigrayans fleeing to neighboring Sudan. Even that in itself meant that it's a regional conflict um, because then the Sudanese were involved. Instability is among the reasons why Iyab Besrat said he left Ethiopia in 2002 to set up a business in South Africa. While it's been hard to watch the recent conflict unfold, he said he was relieved to hear the talks would be happening in his backyard. South Africa is has influence in the rest of African countries. So I believe 
you know, having the talk here, I definitely believe that, you know, some sort of good outcome will come out of this. And I believe it's the right place. I couldn't think of any other country, you know, to host it. But experts like Matshanda warn the ongoing talks are only the first step in a lengthy process to achieving peace. I think this meeting is really not negotiations to end the conflict, but to agree on what to negotiate on. For example, if both parties can agree on the immediate cessation of, of, of hostilities um, and the allowing into Tigray uninterrupted humanitarian aid. So those are really the basics. No details have been released about the talks, meaning that for now, Ethiopians at home and abroad wishing for a declaration of peace will have to wait. Linda Giftash for VOA News, Johannesburg. Somalia's government has promised support for victims of the twin bombings in the capital Saturday that killed at least 100 people and injured close to 300. Saturday's attack by al-Shabaab comes as security forces have been waging a large-scale offensive against the militants. Ahmed Mohammed reports from Mogadishu, Somalia. Following an emergency cabinet meeting on Sunday, Prime Minister Hamza Parasaid his government will contribute $1 million to offset the medical pills for the victims of the Saturday twin bombings and support families affected. The government said it will also cover education costs for children whose parents and dependents were affected in the attacks. Barre also said the government will double down on the offensive against al Shabab to avenge the lives lost. He said... We pledge that we will get revenge for the Somali people. And the final decision is to liberate the country from the terrorists. So as we go through Bain, I urge Somalis to show patience, stability and resilience for the casualties of the ongoing war. He added, we hope in the shortest time to see our country free of explosions, killings and to have freedom of movement in our country. The twin bombings came at the Somali National Army with the packing of clan militias, continue a campaign against al-Shabaab in central Somalia. Rashid Abdi, a security and political analyst from Sahan, a research think tank in Nairobi, says the attacks were a message from al-Shabaab to Somali people who are supporting the government offensives. Al-Shabaab, uh, you know, is using this kind of urban terror, first of all, to intimidate and to create fear. Uh, because remember, if, if they conduct these kind of attacks uh, frequently, people will begin to tell, to, to tell the government, uh, you need to review your strategy. So this is a way of creating public fear and anxiety and uh, pressure on the government to stop uh, the military campaign. But Rashid predicts the attacks will galvanize more people to join the war and ensure Ashabab is defeated. He says Ashabab is also trying to show it still has power despite recent reversals. Their back essentially is to the wall. Uh, more territory has been taken from al-Shabaab hands uh, in the last four months than in the whole of uh, the last five years. They have the al-Shabaab finances, finances and economic uh, power is being dismantled. So I think this is an indication that, that al-Shabaab is, is actually very desperate and uh, wants to show... Uh, the adversary and the government in particular, that it, it still has the capacity and the will uh, to conduct this, uh, this sort of bomb. On Sunday, the government said that 100 Ashaba fighters and leaders had been killed by government forces in the middle Shabelle region.
Saturday's bombings in Mogadishu took place near an interjunction where another bombing five years ago killed nearly 600 people. That bombing, widely blamed on Al-Shabaab, is still the deadliest terrorist attack in African history. Ahmed Mohamed, for VOA News, Mogadishu, Somalia. Nine spectators and two police officers died yesterday in the stampede at the concert in the Democratic Republic of Congo. The deaths occurred at a performance by Africa music star Fali Ipupa in Kinshasa's largest stadium. The French news agency AFP quotes Interior Minister Daniel Asselo Okito as saying the organizers went beyond 100% capacity and must be punished. Authorities say the venue was jammed with people, including the corridors. The Congolese press agency said the police who had cordoned off three areas to secure the pitch, the VIP stand and the stage could not hold back the pressure of the crowd. According to AFP, Ipupa said it appeared they were jostling at the exit and around the stadium, and spectators were dragged to their deaths. He offered condolences to the families of the victims. The incident happened hours after at least 150 people were killed in Seoul, South Korea, in a stampede at a Halloween celebration. You're listening to African News Tonight on The Voice of America. I'm Yeheyes Wuhib in Washington. Today, at least 3,000 protesters marched from the center of Goma in the Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo to the border with Rwanda. The protesters said they were supporting the DRC military, the FRDC, and accused Rwanda of backing the M23 rebels who have seized territory in the region over the past week. The DRC on Saturday expelled Kigali's ambassador over what it said was Rwanda's backing for the M23 rebels, a Tutsi-led insurgency operating in the eastern DRC since 2012. Rwanda, which denies the accusation on Sunday, expressed regret at the decision, adding that its troops at the two countries' border were on high alert. Rwanda has accused the DRC of backing the FDLR, a Hutu militia led by opponents of the Kigali government, some of whom participated in the 1994 genocide against ethnic Tutsis in Rwanda. Reporter Jafar Al-Khatanti walked with the marchers today and tells VOA's Kate Pound Dawson the protests was mostly peaceful. However, DRC police fired tear gas to keep the protesters from crossing into Rwanda. The city of Goma uh, called since yesterday uh, to protest against Kagame as the Rwandan government is pointed to support M23 rebels fighting against FRDC. And many people uh, responded to the call of demonstration. Uh, Thousands of people demonstrated today, around 10 kilometers from the point called Entre President to the border of Rwanda. They were singing uh, their anger against Rwanda, saying we want weapon to fight with uh, our army to protect our country against Rwanda. And the idea was to cross the border and to give that message to Rwandan government itself. But in their road, Congolese police didn't allow them to cross the border. 
And during that discussion, some protesters uh, launched stones on policemen, and then policemen used tear gas to leave them at the border. What is the situation today in Roturo in terms of the fighting, and, and what is the M23 doing today? Is there still fighting today? Yes, they're still fighting. And now they, uh, there is some minutes ago, I think one hour ago, they took the control of Mabenga. Mabenga is uh, uh, a park checkpoint uh, at around 10 kilometers from Kiwanja. And it's not on the direction of Goma, but on the, di- the direction of the north. So they have Ruchuru, they have Kiwanja, and they still are containing on the north side. But also Goma still under alert because uh, if they have Ruchuru and as uh, Congolese army and all services are saying that Rwanda is supporting, so they can also attack Goma at every moment. And we are seeing it because we see a big mobilization of all forces in Goma and around Goma in Nyiragongo territory. Has the Rwandan government made any statements? Uh, They just said on a statement yesterday that they just regret the decision of Kinshasa of expelling the ambassador. And they say that they also have many troops on their border in Rwandan side so that SDLR can't cross the border. As you know, Rwanda is also accusing Congo to support or to work with SDLR, and that can destabilize Rwandan security. That's why, according to the statement by the first person of Rwandan government yesterday, they deployed they deployed many soldiers at the uh, on borders region to keep safe Rwandan territory. That was journalist Jafar Alkatantin Goma. He spoke with VOA's Kate Pond Dawson today. The U.S. Chamber of Commerce, U.S. Africa Business Center, is about to announce the winners of its first annual Africa Digital Innovation Competition for African Startups. VOA is working as a media partner on this initiative, and over the past two weeks, we've been running profiles of the 10 finalists from 17,000 candidates in 50 countries in Africa. Tune in to Africa 54 at 1630 UTC on voaafrica.com for a live report on the three winners, and we'll have more on our African News Tonight show at 1800 UTC. Nigeria's President Mohamedou Buhari is holding emergency meetings today with security chiefs after several foreign missions issued terror warnings last week for the capital Abuja. Timothy Obiezu reports. Buhari's spokesperson, Garba Shehu, made the announcement in a tweet late Sunday. He said top security officials, including the defense minister, armed services chiefs, police and heads of other security agencies will meet the president in Abuja on Monday morning. Shehu said the meeting is to further review and strengthen the security network in the country. 
The meeting follows series of warnings by various foreign nations in Nigeria of an elevated risk of terror attacks in Nigeria, especially the capital. The US, UK, Ireland, Canada, Germany, Denmark, Bulgaria, Finland and Australia last week issued advisories to their citizens warning against non-essential travel to Nigeria. Nigerian authorities insist the country is safe and that there's no cause for alarm. But the warning caused fears among residents and led to the shutdown of businesses and activities. Security expert Senator Irebu says authorities are only trying to allay fears, but that the warnings must be taken seriously. We have to continue as members of the public because we want safety, we want stability. We have to continue demanding that, okay, they should also improve. When they give assurances, I think that's the right statement to do because you don't need to create more panic or to show the public, okay, you're not in charge of the situation. Nigerian security forces have been battling jihadist groups in the northeast for years, but concerns that such groups may be expanding their attacks elsewhere are growing. In June, authorities blamed Islamic State West Africa province, or ISWAP, for an attack on a church in southwest Nigeria that killed 40 worshippers. It was the first attack in the region to be blamed on a terrorist group. One month later, ISWAP claimed responsibility for a massive jailbreak in Abuja that freed more than 800 inmates. More than half of the escapees were recaptured, but hundreds more are at large, including more than 60 terror detainees. Last Monday, security agencies raided a residential area in the capital and arrested at least two terrorism suspects, according to local media reports. Timothy Obiezu for VOA News, Abuja, Nigeria. Leading diamond producers are meeting in Habrone for a summit on the sustainable use of natural diamonds. The meeting comes just a day before Botswana's capital hosts a crucial Kimberley process meeting where the fate of Russia's diamonds will be discussed. Speaking at the summit today, Botswana President Mukwezi Masisi emphasized the need to mine the pressure stones for sustainable development. He says there is now more awareness on the operations of the diamond mining industry amid concerns over stones mined to finance conflict. More importantly, we want to continue working collectively with industry to respond to the needs of the consumer who purchase our products. We are aware that retail clients now increasingly demand to know among other things, where the diamonds that they purchased were sourced from. They want to know how the diamonds have improved the communities living in the areas where they are mined. The Natural Diamond Summit is held on the eve of the Kimberley Process Plenary, which will draw participants from across the globe. Botswana's Minister of Minerals, Lefoko Mwahi, says the meeting on natural diamonds comes at an opportune time. This is therefore a pivotal time for the industry to prepare for the future and determine henceforth how we navigate the uncertainty that we often encounter as stakeholders in the diamond trade. Our common concern for the future and interest in ensuring that natural diamonds continue to be an important symbol of love and beauty across the world is what brings us here today. 
The Natural Diamond Summit is organized by the Botswana government and the world's leading diamond producer, De Beers. Bruce Cleaver, De Beers Managing Director, says the company has come up with initiatives to ensure transparency in its mining operations. We also see traceability and transparency as key elements of a successful diamond business. And one such example is the development and acceleration of our Tracer blockchain platform. The world's first fully distributed diamond blockchain platform providing immutable evidence of diamond's provenance for all the way from source to retail. Botswana is the chair of the Kimberley process and delegates are expected to deliberate on the status of Russia's diamonds following Moscow's invasion of Ukraine in February. Botswana is also bidding to host the Kimberley process on a permanent basis but face challenges from Austria and China. For VOA, this is Nkondisi Dube in Khabaroni, Botswana. And that wraps up this edition of African News Tonight. I'm Yehiyas Wuhib in Washington. For all the latest developments on the continent 24-7, visit our website at voaafrica.com. On behalf of our producer, Mokbil Yabaro, and our engineer, John Dryden, thanks for choosing the Voice of America.